0: Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall.
1: Mine is Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan or Instagram Aaron underscore Dugan.
0: Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Please tell a friend, pass it along, the word just to one other person. Uh, share a link, whatever you know, on any of the platforms that you use. Just that we would appreciate that, right, Aaron? I think, I think we, would. we would.
1: I think we that would be great.
0: Yes, it would. It would be great. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have Andy Staples on the show from the athletic host of the Andy Staples show, as well as football and grits, you know, been around a long time. I've worked with him for many years on Sirius XM as well. Has a lot of great insight. We're going to talk a lot about what South Carolina did with Shane Beamer, what Auburn did with Brian Harson, what the hell's going on at Tennessee. We'll talk about the playoff games as well, uh, which is where I want to start with you, Aaron, today. Cause before we get to the interview, I-, I think you and I need to at least have a discussion about a playoff game. I mean, normally we would sit down and spend 45 minutes trying to break down a football game on new year's day for the right to play for the national championship, but it doesn't, it's just hard. And Andy will back us up on this. (laughs) It's hard to find a, a really sound and intelligent case for Notre Dame without sounding like just a total blatant fan. And I don't, I don't know what to say about the game, to be
2: honest.
1: It's a, it's a far reach. And I think none of us, whether you're, you know, unless you're an Alabama fan or a Notre Dame fan and would love to see a blowout one way or the other, the rest of us really would love it to be a close competitive game. And I think part of it is just sadness on our behalf because we don't think it's going to be. Um, and, you know, it's it's a reach to find even things to you know, we'll talk about this with Andy too, but just try to, you know, level the playing field in certain, you know, distinct areas of the game and try to make them look like they're competitive. And the truth of the matter is, that Alabama is just an absolute force to be reckoned with. Unlike a lot of things we've ever seen in this modern era of football and Notre Dame's really good. But when you, when you're competing against a team who arguably had three guys that could have been Heisman that, I mean, technically were contenders, but um, two of which were nominees. And a lot of people are still talking about that a third one should have been, I mean, that's, that speaks volumes just in and of itself about what this team really looks like, that three guys on that team could have been, you know, not only nominated for the Heisman potentially could have won it and people wouldn't have been mad.
0: I, I cannot, I'll just leave it at this. I cannot wait to announce and then discuss my vote next week on the show. I cannot wait to see what your reaction is. And I have goals. a
1: guess. I wonder if I'm right.
0: <laughs> well, don't don't say it. Just I mean, I'm save not it. going to save it. Save it. But your but your point is valid. Like they're just so far ahead. I mean, again, twenty point spread is the biggest in playoff history. Um, you know, I do. I think a And M would have made for a better game, maybe, but that's irrelevant. I, I, I'm I'm with you. We're just we're just grasping at straws here because there's not a position group where Notre Dame's better. There's not a matchup where Notre Dame's better. The only area I can really come up with is like Alabama's terrible relatively speaking on third down defense Notre Dame's been very very efficient they've got a quarterback who can run around even kind of looks like Johnny Manziel like when his his legs are kind of crazy when he runs and he carries the football loose and he sort of plays a little bit like Johnny Manziel and we know those guys can give Alabama or any team trouble but i, I mean talent statistics matchups there's just not there's yeah. not a real smart rational case to be made for the irish unfortunately and i i hope it means i hope we're all wrong like i want Alabama to to play Clemson in the championship game because I think it would be the best game, but, you know.
1: The only way that even begins to become a little bit more of a possibility than it already is is if this game is messy. If there's a bunch of weird mistakes, which isn't, I mean, that's, Notre Dame has been clean. Alabama would have to make some uncharacteristic mistakes. And, you know, they've had some games where they, you know, had some blips here and there, but overall it hasn't – Ever been enough to really put them at risk? If for some reason, you know, all the the um, the hype and everything gets to them and they start making mistakes, they're still gonna win. Maybe it's closer, but also these kids have been there. They've been there before. They've they've they know what it's like. Savin's does a good job preparing these kids of what it's like to be in a championship situation. On top of the fact that most of them have already been in a situation like yeah. this so I just I don't I, I don't think there would even in I don't even know what world there'd be enough mess ups to even make it kind of close
0: and, and again I think to your point Alabama would have to play an incredibly sloppy game in almost every facet they are the most penalized team in the playoff so of the four teams left Alabama is the most quote-unquote undisciplined if you want to use that that phrase but neither team really turns the football over much so Alabama has to play like the worst game, the sloppiest game. And Notre Dame then has to play a perfect game where they're converting on every third down. They're converting on every trip into the red zone, scoring touchdowns, not field goals. They don't turn the football over. They, you know, <laughs> steal a possession on an onside kick. Like they're going to have to do all this stuff. I'm, I'm actually hoping for like a hand of God moment, you know, where like a football bounces off a helmet and lands in like a defensive lineman's lap. And we're all going up. Oh, that was touchdown Jesus, you know, giving <laughs> Notre Dame a chance. So I, Just because it would make for fun. It would make for a fun conversation because otherwise I think it's Alabama lay the points and I think they win really, really big. So we'll talk with Andy Staples a little bit more about all this stuff. Real quickly though, Aaron, you you just already mentioned the finalists for the Heisman. It's Kyle Trask. It is Mac Jones. It's Devontae Smith. And it is Trevor Lawrence. A little surprised Najee Harris did not get into that conversation, but those are your four finalists. Any thoughts on on the four there? Do, do they feel worthy to you? Do you think Harris was left out? Do you think just sort of your reaction to that? And then again, we'll get to Andy staples here in just a second.
1: You know, part of me, I, I did think Harris had trying to get this out the right way. I do think that I had Harris in my head as being one of the biggest difference makers on this Alabama team this year from a stats perspective, just being able to make things, being able to make things happen. And a lot of times, you know, there's that, you know, there's that quarterback receiver chemistry. If one's good, it helps the other one. And that's not necessarily the same case, you know, with Najee Harris. And I don't, I think that, I think he was definitely deserving of, being a nominee, but it's really hard when you have three guys that are, you know, potential options on the same team without those mista- mistakes in the last mistrasks. almost said that that's Trask and mistakes combined, which, which
0: has never happened. Of course, he's never made a mistake,
1: <laughs> which if, if they had lost that last game, I think that he has a better shot at it. I love it. I love the Cinderella story. I love where he came from. I love what he was able to do with this team that hasn't necessarily had the strong core cornerstone that Alabama has had over the course of the last decade I think it's really impressive with what he was able to do with a team that's just recently back up and on the rise so I have a soft spot for Kyle Trask in this sense but um, I have a feeling Smith takes it home
0: and of course Trevor Lawrence is the best player in all of college football just from like a almost factual yeah. basis so. and the fact that
1: i didn't even mention trevor lawrence yeah. i mean and and i think a lot of it you know with him being out the beginning of the season it's like people started having these heisman conversations so early when trevor lawrence was you know we weren't seeing him on a week to week basis so i mean honestly you, you really can't go wrong and that's normally the case with the heisman um but i have a feeling that the it, it goes to one of the one of the mighty
0: mighty elephants there, there you have it uh so great conversation with andy staples coming up aaron you and i will be back afterward to give us to do some reaction and some thoughts there to send you off into your new year's holiday uh but again enjoy our conversation andy staples from the athletic we're going to cover all kinds of great stuff with with all the new coaches in the league what auburn did vanderbilt as well as south carolina what tennessee should do and we'll dive in to a preview of the college football playoff so without further ado our conversation with the athletics andy staples Andy, how are you? Good, sir. Happy holidays, happy New Year, all that good stuff.
2: Yeah. Also, the Andy Staples show—that's the uh, the big one. You I leave I, stuff
1: I, out, Braden. Yeah,
2: I. I. <laughs> I'm just a co-host one day on football and grits. That, I'm the that, host every day on my own show. Uh, that makes that, sense. And, and, and
0: also, of course, with The Athletic, The Power Hour, which is one of my favorite. Uh, I believe. Did you come up with The Power Hour or did somebody else come up with that?
2: No, that's Nicole, Nicole Auerbach's show, and, and she came up with the name. We did a segment when she was on my show that we, we, we knew once she did her own, that was going to be the name of her show <laughs> because how can you not? Right. I mean, come on.
0: Right, no, I agree. So again, Andy Staples show. I'm, I apologize about that. The Andy Staples show. We'll fix it in post. Um, so let's get Don't started. Fix it in post. Leave it in. Leave it in. in. Leave, leave it, in. In. Please, it in. Leave it in. We we will talk about all of the silliness that goes on in coaching searches which is like my wife hates it about me but i love it it's like my favorite thing is to just gossip about where coaches are going and listening to all of them talk andy so we'll get to all of that coming I bet up she anyway. has great. other things
1: You're on that list plane
2: tracking this year too <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i don't know if she's a big plane tracker but th- there was there was one I-, I can't remember which coaching search it was but somebody was tracking a plane uh I think it may have been Auburn. It was an, it was a flight from Auburn or near Auburn to an airport, not in Oxford, but kind of one town over from Oxford. And everybody's like, it's Lane. It's going to be Lane. And then somebody on Twitter goes, nah, that's my buddy's plane. It's got propellers. They're not picking up (laughs) Lane in a propeller plane. That's hilarious. Yeah.
0: If you ever like the, the two cottage industries are trying to pick a vice presidential candidate, and trying to hire an SEC football coach—that that's where you have to fly planes into random airports that don't match anything, so that you can hide your, you, you know, all the information about your plane tracking. Two very small cottage industries, Andy. Um, so let, let's get started with some football games, uh, if you're going to call it that. I, I guess my first question for Alabama Notre Dame, the first game on Friday. I, I guess make the the case for the miracle. I, I don't know where the matchup is. Uh, you know, this is the largest point spread in playoff history. Just sort of, can you make the case to our audience that, that Notre Dame can find some places that they can match up, find some success, and, and maybe actually make this a, a close game?
2: I really like how long you, you drag that question out, because the answer is no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to fill time here.
2: <laughs> I know, but it's, it's no. It just is. I was on, I was on a show, one of those you know, national sports talk, like general shows where they really don't talk much college football. And so naturally they gravitated towards Notre Dame because that's how they do it. And, and they were like, does Brian Kelly have something to prove here? And they're like, no, he got Notre Dame to the playoff for the second time in three years. He's proven it. They fish from a different recruiting pond than Ohio state and Alabama and, and Clemson. The fact that they're there at all is a huge deal and everybody's going to say, Oh, they didn't belong. Oklahoma loses every time they get in the playoff too. What's the difference? Like, There's only a few teams that are actually capable of competing for the national title. And they're probably not one of them. And that's okay. Given what they have to deal with in terms of it's harder to get kids in, it's harder to keep them there once you get them in, and you're just dealing with a a smaller group of people you can recruit from. I think they're doing pretty well. I just don't think they can beat Alabama. I mean, they beat Clemson earlier this year and, that they were at full strength on the offensive line, which certainly helps. But when you're when you're down to your third string center, well, you saw what happened in the ACC championship game. And then, I just don't know how anybody stops that Alabama offense. I think that the the teams, you know, Clemson and Ohio State may be capable of scoring along with Alabama, but I don't know that anybody's going to really stop them. And I, I just I'm not sure there's an elite defense in the country this year, so it, it it may just be that every Alabama game, you know, you're you're trying to hit 50 before they do.
1: Did feel like a stretch, even digging into the game and trying to figure out, like you know, what conversations can we have where these two teams would match up or Notre Dame would put up a fight, and even looking through those, you can maybe come down to offensive line, but it still felt like a stretch for me. Still felt like I was I think, really you know, crying
2: as good or better than theirs.
1: Well, no, I agree with that. I'm just saying that's the only thing I could even get close on talking about. And I was really stretching to find that.
2: Yeah. Anything they match up is. There's not going to be a position group where Notre Dame's better. And that would be the closest one. And, you know, Alabama's kind of in the same boat as Notre Dame right now, offensive line-wise, because they just lost Landon Dickerson in the SEC championship game. But, you know, from a talent standpoint and a depth standpoint, they're still in in better shape there because they can – they can bring in somebody better and they're not on their third string center at this point. So, you know, that's, that's the part where it's just, it's hard with, with teams playing against an Alabama or Clemson or an Ohio state, if they aren't one of those three, I mean, Georgia t- kind of has that talent level, but they've never really been able to put it together except for, you know, coming one miracle pass short of winning the national title. But the other years they haven't been able to put it together in the same way as those as, as other programs. And then you had LSU that had kind of the magical year where they were just completely loaded. They had the perfect quarterback, the perfect, you know, passing game coordinator, if that's what we're, we're gonna call Joe Brady. You know, they had everything just sort of stars aligned. I just don't know that there's there's a lot of programs that have that talent level that can do that, they can they can go toe-to-toe with these teams. You know, and, and it's funny because everybody says Ohio State doesn't belong in the playoff because they've only played six games. But the thing is, from a pure talent standpoint, they are one of the few that if they play Alabama, they can match up toe-to-toe. I don't know if they'd win that game, but I think they'd, they'd have a much better shot than almost anybody else.
0: So I'm, I'm curious. I've, this is going to be like a, a classic five-part question here. Um, yes. I'm curious about – I want to get to A&M then because I do think if you're talking about who's recruiting from the big pond – a&M would be an 18-point 18, mm-hmm. 18 underdog to Alabama, which in theory would be smaller than the 20 points. And they already points.
2: lost by, them, by, by 28 to them once.
0: Right. And, and so, I, I, you know, again, I'm of the belief that I think A&M is the better team than Notre Dame. I understand why the resume, the committee, we'll get to all of yeah, that. Yeah,
2: Notre Dame beat a team that's in the playoff and, and A&M didn't. Right. It, that was a pretty easy call. <laughs>
0: So easy decision by the committee. I, I understand where they're coming from. But if we're saying sort of stepping back and saying who's the better football team and who recruits from the deeper pond and who could, you know, in theory, be better situated, which is not the committee's I, job. But I don't,
2: I don't think Texas A&M is better than Notre Dame. Like, what, it, where? Where are they better?
0: Well, so I've made the case, Andy. I think they're the same team. I think they're the exact same team. I can it, agree
2: with that. I, no. I, I, w- I would buy that.
0: They're identical, man. They are built the same way. They have a quarterback who's mobile that they use in interesting ways. Uh, you know, in the running game, they've got versatile weapons in the backfield. They're built on, along the line of scrimmage with both offensive and defensive lines. Both their coaches have been to the national title game. They don't have a lot of weapons on the outside. Like, the yeah. only difference is Notre Dame beat uh, Trevor Lawrence-less Clemson and Alabama played – or a and A&M played at Alabama. Yeah. I, I think you could argue A&M's better, but I think you can argue Notre Dame's better. So –
2: I, I think the same team argument is good. I you know if Jamon Osmond doesn't opt out, maybe that puts A and M over the top because it gives them that threat who can stretch the field. But I think that's a pretty that's a pretty accurate comparison. I think I think the same team is is probably pretty accurate, which unfortunately for those of us who are are viewing that game in in Jerry World, you're probably gonna get a similar result which means it's not going to be much fun after the first quarter.
0: So l- l- let me go back to the first and second parts of the question I was going to ask you, because you mentioned Ohio state.
2: It's a lot the, of parts.
0: Yeah. The, the argument. I'm keeping has, them straight
2: in my head. They're all, it's all
0: <laughs> the argument about Ohio state. If you, if you notice from a lot of coaches has never been that they aren't good enough. It's that they didn't play enough games, which is hilarious right. to me because as we talked <laughs> about last week on the show, if any of their, if any other coach was in that situation, six and O sec champ, they would burn down message boards and,
2: Oh, know, of st- course, st- all, all politics country. are local. And, and what's funny to me about the whole Ohio State thing is who wanted to play most in the Big Ten? Nebraska and Ohio State. I mean, Ohio State led the charge to get the Big Ten back on the field. So don't punish them because the rest of their conference was dumb.
0: So, so let me ask you then from Nick Saban's perspective, what could, I, I think the only two things, and I don't think they're teams, I think there are two things that concern Nick Saban right now today. Going into the playoff, mm-hmm. and their yeah. names are Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. I think that's it. I don't think Nick Saban yeah. is concerned about anything else.
2: Yep. And uh, so Ari Wasserman, who re- covers recruiting for the Athletic, he does a lot of podcasts with me. He- he's convinced that in this day and age, you cannot win the national title without an NFL starting quarterback on as your starter. And I, I've, I'm pretty hard pressed to to disagree because you know Jake Coker, I guess, is the last one who wasn't you know, NFL caliber you know, starting quarterback. And that was sort of with Deshaun in that game, it was sort of the passing of the torch you could kind of see. And that's the one where Nick Saban had to steal the, the possession with the onside kick to win the game. So I think you're right. I think, I think those two guys should, should scare him. And those two guys are what you need. I mean, think about the last time Nick Saban played Trevor Lawrence. Clemson crushed Alabama in that game and you know this is a this feels like a similar situation because we are just like in 18, in 2018 we're saying Alabama's invincible and we were saying that going into that even though you know we'd seen Alabama in the SEC championship game against Georgia that year kind of struggle and and need Jalen Hurts to come in and and bring them back but Going into that national title game, we're like, oh, Clemson doesn't have a chance. Their offensive line is going to get blown up. Their offensive line played its best game of the year, and they destroyed Alabama. And it was, it was Trevor Lawrence. The Trevor Lawrence to Justin Ross connection specifically was what, what did it. And then you realize, oh, wow, when you have a quarterback like this, it really changes the math. And now here's the thing. I think Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Mac Jones are all NFL starting quarterbacks. I think Ian Book's going to make some money in the NFL for a long time, but it may be in the, in, in the chase Daniel way. So I think that's, that's your issue too. And Kellen Mond probably in the same boat. If you're going to go styles, make fights, Kyle Trask might've been the one Alabama would have to worry about. And they beat him. And, and it was, it was dicey for a minute. So I, I think, I think you're right. I think that caliber of quarterback makes everything different
1: so I was (laughs) Braden Andy my dad is quite literally like no one I've ever met in my you will never meet anyone like this guy he's I don't even know how to describe it I don't know if Braden could either Um, he texted me earlier we were talking about you know is something about 2021 going to be better and I was like well maybe at least for sports it won't be as crazy like maybe our you know our lives will be a little bit more seamless his response to me and I quote him directly was sorry I'm going to cuss how much better can 2021 be when on the first fucking day God's team is a three touchdown dog to Satan? And then he said, I mean, Saban. And I, I just, he doesn't even rattle me anymore. So I was like, I'm sure a lot of Irish Catholic dads feel the same, you know, dad, that's, I'm sure you're not alone. And he said, first of all, the politically correct term is drunk American. And then he hung up.
2: Very nice. Well, I think, I think he's definitely
1: uh, <laughs> crazy.
2: He's definitely got it. He, he's got it figured out and and hopefully so. he will be good and sauced up by the time that game starts. There's some good day drinking going into that game. Cause that Has is to the be. early game. Has so to be. I, I think that's a, you know, don't look at it as a, you know, a potential three or four touchdown loss for Notre Dame. Look as it, look at it as an opportunity to day drink and then continue through the first half. And then, Maybe sleep it off during the, the Sugar Bowl.
1: <laughs> I think it's all about perspective, Andy. You nailed that. I,
0: I would say sleep it off during the second half and then, you know, rally. And then the, watch the Sugar Bowl. Rally. Yeah, that's the Sugar
2: Bowl. probably true. Uh, switch, probably so, true.
0: Before, because we are an SEC show, we'll get to a lot of the SEC coaching stuff real quickly with you, Andy. But I, before we get to that, Clemson and Ohio State, it does feel like it has all of the things, right? You've got mm-hmm. the recruits, you've got the brands, you've got the quarterbacks, you've got,
2: you got Dabo ranking them yeah. number eleven in the coaches poll. God,
0: you've got history. That's so good. You've got history just from last year with a, you know, with like a little twist of controversy, even if, oh, it, yeah, even if if it's not real. Um, so I, you put all that together. I like Ohio State to cover, but I like Clemson to win. So give us your thoughts quickly on the Clemson-Ohio State other matchup and who Alabama's going to face in the national championship game.
2: <laughs> I think that's a fair assessment. I, I, I think Clemson wins this one. I, I think it's not quite as difficult as, as Ohio State made it last year. Look, if there's a couple ifs in that game. If J.K. Dobbins doesn't roll his ankle at the end of the first half, you know, they were just destroying Clemson on the ground. I think he was averaging almost 16 yards a carry when he got hurt. So if that doesn't happen, the Sean Wade targeting penalty, I think, was a big one. The, the one where they, they took the touchdown off the board when they thought it was a scoop and score, and they said it wasn't. Um, but where I think that game really turned was where, was when Trevor Lawrence outran Ohio State's entire secondary for that touchdown. And it was like, oh, man, wait, he can do that too? That was, that was pretty crazy. But I, I liked – I thought that game was fun. I, Ohio State does not seem as loaded on the defensive side of the ball as they were last year. I think yeah. you know. The, I rewatched that game the other day, and it was one of those deals where you're watching Chase Young and you're like, "How's he not sack quarterback every play?" It, like you're surprised when he's not in the backfield because these the poor offensive tackles and these are good offensive tackles, and he's just abusing them. And you've seen it him do the same thing in the NFL. So. I think the, the fact that they don't have that and then they're probably not quite as as good in the secondary as they were, I think that helps Clemson a little bit. Now, here's the thing. Clemson is not as loaded at the receiver position as it usually is. And, and they've had to go a little bit different because they have some big guys, but like Joseph Negaard has been hurt. Uh, so Justin Ross has been out all season. There's no Justin Ross, no T. Higgins, no Mike Williams type. It's, it's been a little bit different where Amari Rodgers – has been doing kind of the heavy lifting in the passing game. And I think Travis Etienne has become a much bigger weapon in the passing game. And that's something Ohio state probably remembers all too well from the game last year, unfortunately for them. But there, this is, this is one where I think with Trevor Lawrence, with this group, they're they're so experienced. They've been through all this. Ohio state really hasn't gotten a chance to play all together, which I think kind of, I can go one of two ways. It's, oh, we haven't seen them at full strength yet, which is entirely possible. Or are they going to have the chemistry you want? You know, I think if you had a month to prepare for this game, you could say, oh, well, this will help them chemistry-wise. And uh, they'll be firing on all cylinders because they'll finally have gotten to practice together. And but this isn't really your typical semifinal run-up. I mean, you had a week and a half, essentially. So I, I really think that's going to be – a disadvantage for Ohio state is that they haven't really had everybody together. And, you know, I, I, I think if, if they can kind of click immediately, then that's a pretty close game. But if not, then I think Clemson can, can take control. And I think they're good enough to, to just kind of steer the game the way they want. The, the thing I like about Clemson and Alabama is they can both win in a variety of ways. You know, they can, if, if they need to score in 45 seconds, they'll figure out how to do that. But also, if they can get a lead and then they, they want to have, you know, six or seven-minute scoring drives, they can do that too. They're capable of both. And I think probably they're, they're the two teams in the playoff that are most capable of both, which I think gives them the advantage.
0: Well, I, just real quickly on – and let's transition into the some of the coaching stuff here. You, you know, <laughs> at one point I thought Auburn was a cautionary tale – for Tennessee or anyone else in college football Michigan maybe even Texas as far as making a move and, and allowing boosters to medal and, and and all this other stuff it's you know the bar Gus Malzahn said as we've discussed on this show a million times is 66 percent of the games you got to win you got to beat Nick Saban three times you got to win two divisions get to the national title game etc cetera, etc cetera. but but then then they turned into how an athletic director and a president can actually stand their ground a little bit and actually go out and pull a name that we, we largely believe is a pretty good football coach. So what are your thoughts on how the, the search unfolded and, and is Brian Harson sort of saving the day as far as what Auburn went through firing Gus Malzahn and then almost walking down the aisle with a few other guys?
2: I was pleasantly surprised with the way the search unfolded because they did, they came to a logical conclusion and Yes, the the power struggle piece of it is very interesting. I thought John Talty had a really good story in AL.com that, that broke all that down. And it, 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 it is interesting because Auburn's one of those where when something big happens, you do wonder who is making that decision. Like, who decided that? Was that the president? Was that the AD? Was that somebody on the board? You know, this At the end, looked like the AD and the president working together, which I think is a good thing for Brian Harson going forward. I think it means that that now he has a mandate because these guys said, "Look, you know, it's our deal. We realize you care a lot. You guys spend a lot of money, but we're going to do what's best for Auburn here." And they picked a very good coach. They picked a guy who, you know, I, I realized that the more casual fans probably only think of Boise state as a bunch of trick plays. You know, they're talking about the, the hook and ladder and the statue of Liberty and all that. But if you watch Boise state during the Bryson or the Brian Harsen era, and really during the Chris Peterson era too, when they were playing in conference, they were just whipping people's asses up front. That's what they do. They, they build good offensive lines, good defensive lines. They usually have an NFL guy or two in there and look, it's Boise state. It's hard to So at Auburn, Every guy's an NFL guy, ideally. And on the defensive line, that's really been the case. On the offensive line, it has not been the case. And that's where I think they can really help Auburn improve. Uh, Kevin Steele obviously probably isn't going to be there. You know, that situation makes it impossible to keep him. I I kind of wish it hadn't happened that way for Brian Harson, because if it had happened a little bit differently, and, and Kevin Steele isn't part of the whole the whole shenanigans behind the scenes, then you can say, Hey, can we just keep him? Can we just have him run a great defense and get good recruits? And so you can't do that, but there are plenty of good candidates who can do that. The thing for Brian Harson is keep doing what you've been doing, but now you have to get those five-star recruits that Auburn has been getting all along. They've, they've always been capable of doing that. They may not have as star studded a roster as maybe Alabama or Georgia but they're going to get theirs enough so that they can compete with Alabama and Georgia, or they should, you know, that's where, that's where Gus did it right. And where Harson has to make sure he keeps doing it. You, you know, you still got to get the Derek Browns. You, it's, it's great that you are probably going to find some uh, high three-star who you, you know, an Isaiah Simmons type, Clemson finds him as a three-star and, and turns him into a first round draft pick. You're going to find those guys. I, I guarantee that. But, can you also get the sure thing five-star who then comes in and plays like a sure thing five-star because Auburn's been capable of that in the past and needs to keep doing that otherwise they will fall behind.
1: Do you think it serves him well Andy that he has that kind of creative offensive mindset and knows how to develop guys especially in the quarterback position but then it's would you say it's, e- it's easier to do the recruiting and all of that, finding these new guys, getting the five stars through the door? Is it easier to learn that and how to do it than it is to come up with that creativity?
2: Well, the, the thing about Harson, you mentioned the, the, the quarterback development, and I think that's a, a pretty big thing here at Auburn because look at Gus Malzon's quarterbacks. Which one got better since they got to Auburn? None of them. They all regressed. And so that's the part where if you could have a quarterback actually progress while he's on campus, that would make a huge difference. Imagine, uh, you know, imagine if Bo Nix had been getting better all this time, you know, that's, that's the part that I think he brings that was lacking because offensive creativity, it was not lacking at Auburn. Gus Malzahn is one of the best offensive minds you will ever meet. It's just, for whatever reason, they were not great at developing quarterbacks. And, and, you know, that goes through quite a bit of regime in terms of Gus and, and various offensive coordinators. So I don't know why that never happened that way, but Brian Harson has a good track record the other way. And I think that that's going to help Auburn. You know, in terms of creativity, I don't think there's going to be a, a really a, a, a difference both of those guys are very creative. You know, Gus's offense is, is, is very creative. But I do think if Brian Harson can make the offensive line better, make the quarterback's progress instead of regress, you got something cooking there.
0: So it is a rite of passage when anyone comes on the show that I have to ask, um, what, what is it that Tennessee is doing to itself and how do they stop?
2: <laughs>
0: you mean this week? Yeah. Like I just, I'm going to ask everyone that comes on, why are they doing that to themselves? What is the problem? What's the solution? How do they fix it? I i I, it's it again, it's just, we're just now asking everybody that comes on the show.
2: I don't think there's one problem. I think this is a, this is sort of a snowball effect of various things that, that really comes from the top. I mean, look at the leadership of Tennessee and not just the athletic department leadership, but the university leadership, over the last 20 years it's just been constant churn and when that happens it doesn't help the athletic department and and especially when you have the 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 politics of the stuff up top then affecting the athletic department like when when you have John Curry being hired and then being yanked and then uh the the chancellor who hired him getting getting run off and I mean those are the things that that sets you back. I mean, I, I always use this example of a place where everybody pulls in the same direction. Oklahoma is a great example of that. So David Boren was the president of Oklahoma. He just recently stopped being the president of Oklahoma, but he was the president of Oklahoma back in 1998. And he hired Joe Castiglione to be the AD in 1998. That fall they fired John Blake and they hired Bob Stoops to take over at Oklahoma. David Boren, Joe Castiglione, and Bob Stoops were, worked in those same jobs until Bob Stoops retired in 2017. Like, that's alignment right there. And how old how well they do? Pretty well. Dominated their conference the entire time. So that, that's the difference between a university that's aligned and one that is misaligned. And Tennessee has been very misaligned, and the football program has suffered because of it. Uh, you never know who's in charge. And, and, and here's the thing right now. Do we know who's in charge right now? Because I get the sense that Philip Fulmer really wants to keep Jeremy Pruitt, wants to give him another shot. Doesn't feel like the churn that they've had in their program is good for the program and would like to just have some stability for, for once. It seems like there are people in and around and potentially above who feel differently, who would like to go a different direction. And Hugh Freeze might be the direction they'd want to go, which I think is really interesting because, you know, you get past the other stuff, the reason he was fired from Ole Miss. And then you got the NCAA stuff at Ole Miss, which I think is something that, that has to be talked about with the SEC office. And, but I don't think the SEC office can keep him on double secret probation forever. They have to let him get hired to school eventually. So they, I, this is a case where I'm not sure they could block him. So you know he can win there. He won at a place, you know, Ole Miss is, is not as good of a job as Tennessee, and he won an Ole Miss. So, you know, you look at that and you go, hmm, if they go decide to make a change, is Fulmer still the AD? Is he still in charge? Because my guess is if they make a change, it'll be over his head. And so then you have the added <laughs> – the added – layer of intrigue with the uh, the NCA investigation that, that trey wallace uh, broke right before the texas a&m game started and that screams we're looking for a way to fire this guy for free because we feel bad about giving him an extension that put us on the hook for more millions of dollars it's just it, there's so much right now it's such a mess yeah
1: <laughs> i mean there's, it's not really it's a hard problem. to respond hey, to, it's to just that It's crazy honestly.
0: Well, and it's all, all that churn is, is, you know, again, that's the problem. Like you said, it's, it's too many cooks in the kitchen. It's, you know, there's no leadership and, and all that good stuff. Uh, Shane Beamer has announced a lot of his coaching staff. W- what do you make of uh, our guest last week, who I know you know very well, Stephen Godfrey, said that South Carolina is a $4 million graveyard, which I am, <laughs> I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of on board with, um, except for you're going to have like, – Is it a-
2: really a graveyard when they give you that much money to leave? It, it,
0: well, it, four million, four, it's, a, it's, it's an expensive graveyard, $4 million. But again, 89,000 people are going to be there. It's, it, it's got everything. It's just impossible really to win there. What, what do you make of, of the Shane Beamer hire and the coaching staff he's assembled as he announced all of his assistants this past weekend?
2: Well, I don't know with I the Shane Beamer hire. I, I, I like the idea of bringing in a guy who helped them create their most successful period in their history. And helped stock the roster for that. I think that's pretty important. What I thought was interesting was keeping Mike Bobo as the OC. That was the part that, that sort of, I was like, okay, this, this doesn't make sense. Because when you got hired, the thought was, you're bringing an offense maybe that looks a little like Oklahoma's. Well, that's not what Bobo runs. I mean, Bobo just ran the offense at South Carolina. He had the opportunity to run what he wanted. And that's what he ran. So it was not what people were getting excited about. So I'm not sure how excited recruits are going to be to play in that offense. And so that, that decision was a little surprising to me. And look, every head coaching hire is a crapshoot. I, I just love, I, I, the day they hired him, somebody tweeted at me, uh, you know, they, they could have gotten a head coach. They hired an assistant. What, what are they thinking? And I'm like, yeah, you mean like when, Clemson hired an assistant, and South Carolina, the last time, hired a guy who'd been a head coach in the SEC. Right? One worked out better than the other. Nobody knows anything. But the, the Mike Bobo decision is, is interesting to me because I, I would like to hear the rationale behind that, like a, the, the real rationale behind that. Uh,
0: somebody who's an adult who's been in the SEC before and called plays? I, I don't know. I mean I'm with you I'm all with you. of these
2: things are true and he's been a head coach before which I do understand the value of having somebody on your staff if you've never been a head coach who has been a head coach uh, I think I think that helps I mean uh, you look at Dabo he had he's had Robbie Caldwell early in his career and and that that helped him a little bit um, but and he also hired Pete limbo to run special teams Pete limbo was a good head coach at Lehigh and and had some good years at Ball State and was kind of a hot name for a while so I get that part of it, just wanting to, to have somebody you can kind of lean on to, to help you with that stuff that, that maybe, you know, hasn't crossed your mind before, but they've had to deal with it. But I just think, are you going to have Mike Bobo running what he ran at Colorado State, what he ran at, at South Carolina this year, or is that going to change? Is that going to be something different? I, that part I'd love to know because – I thought the idea was to run something fun.
1: You make an interesting point on the same, you know, on that same front. Well, Braden and I talked a lot about, you know, if you don't have that head coaching experience, as long as you are aware of that, and you're not too cocky to admit that you need to bring other people in that know things that you don't. um, And that can make that kind of system work. And, you know, Vanderbilt's in a similar situation with Clark Lee and, you know, he hasn't had that head coaching spot before. And I want to know your opinion on this situation, Andy, but also the main thing and I don't really know how it's going to work either I think it's hard to make guesses until you actually see them in that situation. But the thing that stands out to me about this is that people were really sad to see him go a lot of people were talking about how we thought they thought he was potential replacement for Brian Kelly down the line. So that one sentiment like I hang on to more than really anything else, but how do you think this is going to play out? And just want to hear your opinion on, and Clark Lee.
2: Well, Vandy's a tough job. I mean, you think (laughs) about it. James Franklin is the only person who's had any reasonable level of success there in a long, 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 long long time. But the Clark Lee thing is, is good because he wanted that job has wanted that job for a long time. His, his ideas, he would like to be for Vanderbilt what Pat Fitzgerald has been for Northwestern which I think would be fantastic. Now, the difference is when Pat Fitzgerald took over, uh, Randy Walker had Northwestern rolling. They were running an offense that basically everybody else has since stolen. Uh, they, they were very much out punching their weight in the Big Ten already. And so Fitzgerald came into a, a little bit better situation than what Clark Lee will come into. But – Clark Lee understands the place. He understands what he has to sell. And, uh, you know, I think I thought James Franklin really did a good job of selling Nashville as a recruiter. And I, I think that's, it's, it's something Vandy can use to differentiate itself other than the quality of the education, which I also think as the years have gone by has become a more important factor for recruits. So I think uh, Clark Lee, who has been recruiting to Notre Dame knows exactly how to sell that piece of it as well. So I think, He's very uniquely suited to do this job. The thing is, it doesn't make it any less hard. You know, you're still in the SEC East, where right now Georgia's really good and Florida's really good. So everybody else is fighting for third. And then what are you really fighting for, Vandy? You'd you'd like to be fourth or fifth in a good year? (laughs) Yeah, bowl eligible. And I think that's – the thing about Vandy, though, that, that makes it a little bit different than, than, say, South Carolina, is South Carolina, they expect you to be really good every once in a while. You know, maybe maybe compete for the East every once in a while. Vandy never expects that. So if you can be bowl el- eligible every year at Vandy, you can be – you're not Fitz because Fitz has taken his team to Big Ten title games. But you are David Cutcliffe, who seemed very, he seems very happy at Duke. Now, they had a bad year this year. But for the most part, he's been very happy there. They've been very happy with him. And I think that ideally is what you want at Vandy. You want a team that is bowl eligible most years, that is competitive in most games. You know, maybe when they play Alabama, they're not going to be competitive, but you want them to be competitive against the South Carolinas and the Kentuckys of the world. And if Clark Lee can pull that off, then great. And, and I hope that makes him happy. And that's what he wants to do forever because I can't, I kind of think that's the best situation for Vandy is to get their own David Cutcliffe. I don't know that you can get your own Pat Fitzgerald at Vandy just because of the way the league's structured, but I do think you can get your own David Cutcliffe. And if that's what Clark Lee is and wants to be, then I think they'll be really happy with that.
0: Uh, Real quickly here before we let you go, Andy, Coach O, LSU, once again, massive coaching turnover for the second straight year. We've seen Nick Saban sort of survive that to some degree. Can Coach O do that?
2: That's a good question. I mean, we've seen – it's interesting when you look at the playoff. We've seen Nick Saban survive it, and we've seen uh, Brian Kelly really survive it. Because Brian Kelly probably changed more between 2016 and 2017 than any program we've seen that didn't actually fire the head coach. So – This is a a big spot for, for Ed Orgeron. He has to figure out what worked for him when they won the national title. And it can't just be, oh, it was Joe Burrow. And they still have a ton of talent at LSU. They have enough talent that if you put the right coaches in place, you can compete with Alabama. You have enough players to do it. So, you know, he's got to hire an offensive coordinator who is not stale. I mean, they brought in Joe Brady from the Saints. And he brought a lot of what Sean Payton did to college and mixed it with what he'd seen other college teams doing. And that was fantastic. They need to do that again. They need someone who is is a forward-thinking, progressive, offensive thinker. And defensively, they need someone who, you know, I, I think personality might matter. In this one. I mean, you look at the difference in personalities between Dave Aranda and Bo Pelini, and that's two different coaching styles. Two very, very, very different coaching styles. So I think, I think you, you may want to find another cerebral guy like Dave Aranda because yeah. the, the players seem to really respond to that.
0: Andy Staples from The Athletic. Thank you so much, my friend. We do appreciate it. Enjoy the New Year's holiday, man. I, I will. I will be at the Sugar Bowl. Enjoy it. Safe travels. Uh, Go overtime.
2: (laughs) Will do. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. See you guys.
0: That was Andy Staples of The Athletic. We appreciate his time. Always interesting to hear him talk. Always a a passionate talker of college football. uh, And do appreciate hanging out with him. Uh, Aaron, just, you know, I thought some of the – you know, we've already talked about the games in the playoff, but I think some of the coaching stuff, I, I am, am I wrong to be just completely obsessed with coaching searches at this time of year? Like, I it is like my Bravo TV.
1: As it long is. as it doesn't wreck your marriage, I think it's fine.
0: Oh, no, she sees less of me. So, of course, it's a good thing.
1: Yeah, but you also drive her my insane marriage. with this, don't you?
0: I, I mean, she just like, like Steven she said, you are ridiculous. Yeah, she just uh, like, but I don't understand. Watching Teen Mom or whatever garbage television she does. Haley watch Teen Mom. Yes, she does. Oh, okay. It's very off-brand for her. Like
1: I thought you were just throwing one out there that would like sound embarrassing. I didn't know you actually meant she watched that. No. no. I still like her though because she's awesome. But that's a weird show to be obsessed with.
0: Yeah, and again, it's not her brand at all. Like she likes it's it's her version of getting away. And again, my version of that is texting with you know random people behind the scenes about who's interested in what job and who likes what and what do you think about this team and what do you think about that conference and oh who's who's going to be the offensive coordinator like I just it, it I don't know why I'm obs- it's like conference realignment most people hate conference realignment I love conference realignment
1: nerd alert I love alert. It. What, what what stood out to you most about or which comment by Andy about the coaching searches stood out to you the most
0: uh, I, I think he he's really fixated on the Mike Bobo angle for Shane Beamer, which I think is is a smart thing to do. Otherwise, I kind of agreed with him on a lot of stuff. I'm trying to figure out places I disagree with him on, and you know the Auburn search. I think he's right. It, it you know I felt like it looked like a a mess, and then they salvaged it by doing the right things. And I and he's right. I definitely go read the John Talty piece in AL.com about the president and the athletic director pushing back on the boosters and who really made the final decision on the coaching search. It is fast. Again, that's what, that's what I'm fascinated by. And and I don't know, pick an answer on Tennessee. Like he's, he's just another really smart football mind that gives us another view into what's going on at, at Tennessee. So I, you know, (laughs)
1: <laughs> and in reference to the um, all of the Clark Lee stuff we talked about and just Vanderbilt's situation, I think he made a solid point in the sense that Vanderbilt needs someone that's you know going to be a lifetime guy that's going to stick around and continue to build the program and not necessarily use Vanderbilt as a get into the SEC stepping stone and then taking something from there, just kind of like building that. You know, building whatever Vanderbilt's version of a dynasty in football is going to be, um, whether that's just making it to a bowl each year or or what, but just you know some consistency there. And I, it, he's right that and say on the same front about admin and alignment from the top to the bottom and how important it is for upper administration and a an university to be on the same page as the athletic department and the coaching staff and do you understand the hierarchy and how it works and at Vanderbilt that's especially important so it'll be exciting to see if if he's the guy
0: it, Clark has been uh, wooing people with with his uh, press conferences not not just with Vanderbilt but with Notre Dame because again finally people are starting to get to see him out there in the public and uh, I think a lot of media are, are as we predicted on the show are, are impressed with his personality. Does that translate into CEO sort of leadership? Uh, you know, it certainly can. And it's a good sign that, that he's, that he's acting that way. I, it seems like Vanderbilt though. Cause again, I, I disagree with your, with his and your point about hire a lifer. I think it's perfect if you can find a lifer, but they're yeah. really, they're really, really hard to find. Pat Fitzgerald is like a, you know, a once in a lifetime guy. Yeah, golden ticket. And, and so I would always say like, don't not hire someone because you think they're going to leave because if they're going to leave, it's because they've done a great job and you've won a lot of games and that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fair.
0: And so I, that part, I, I can kind of go back and forth on like, again, it applies to Clark Lee and, and Shane Beamer for that. matter. Like if Shane Beamer wins so many games at South Carolina that he's interviewed by Alabama to take over for Nick Saban, that means he's won a shit ton of games same thing yeah. with, same thing with Clark Lee at Vanderbilt and so you know again if Alabama comes calling do you think Clark Lee says no and stays at Vanderbilt it's hard to see anyone do that right
1: no I don't
0: yeah
1: I don't think so so I think you you, you make a point where if, if other people want them it's it means your team did well
0: I, I think the bigger issue is Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern asked for a 350 million dollar facility and got it and that is what Clark Lee is going to need at Vanderbilt to sort of consistently be, I think, as Andy said, competing for, you know, that third, fourth spot in the SEC East. Uh, Aaron, any, any New Year's traditions for you as we sort of end on a, on a mellow note here to end a godforsaken calendar year that I have no way to explain to my children and, and when I do 15 years from now, a bomb going off in our city on Christmas morning is going to be like the sixth or seventh thing that I tell them about, which tells you all you need to know about this godforsaken calendar year. Um, how are you saying goodbye? <laughs> and how are you moving on into a new and hopefully brighter calendar year?
1: I'm just trying to put my head down and make it through these last three days because shit just keeps coming. And you're like, just how I felt that oh. we're in the home stretch here. Then we have Christmas Nashville catastrophe and all this. I'm just like, just get me there. I also don't, I'm not a, a, it's, you know, pandemic, but I'm not a big new year's person anyway. I always call it, my dad and I always call it like amateur night. Um, and someone always, my take on new year's is that people, it's really cold. I hate being cold. People get really dressed up and, They're then really cold because you're in dresses and heels and then someone always cries. So I'm like, we just gotta, that's just like a girl. It's, it always happens. Someone always cries on New Year's. I don't like it. So I'm not upset about not going out. Um, I'm just upset. I'm just gonna get my, continue to get my life organized and try to move into 2021. And I saw a meme on, on Instagram or something the other day that was like, okay, to all the people in 2021, come in, sit down, and don't touch anything. I thought that was <laughs> hilarious because, like, just let it, just let it be. Let it
0: be, let it be. Uh, it's funny. So my wife and I met on New Year's Eve. Really? Um, and i I'm, I'm. We agree with you that it is amateur hour, along mm-hmm. with St. Patrick's Day and and Halloween. So those three. It's also hilarious. Like envisioning your stage of life. And, and sort of the fact that someone cries on New Year's Eve in well, dresses. I mean,
1: maybe not at 30, but all well, the but, way up to a couple of years ago.
0: But like dresses and heels and crying is something that we definitely used to, to deal with. And it's just so not. Now it's dresses and heels and crying, but she's four. And so yeah, she, that's true. she's, she's wearing a princess dress and trying to wear her heels and crying about the fact that she can't wear her heels, but we're just trying to get her in bed by seven thirty so that we can open up a bottle of champagne and celebrate sort of our other anniversary, which is, um, the night that we met. I actually, people that don't you know, meet at
1: moon taxi? I bet you did.
0: Uh funny story. So people ask, how did we meet? And I say, she walked into my apartment and never left. And that's sort of true. We had a round-the-world party at the Encore downtown Nashville, which is where we lived at the time, where I lived at the time. And we had a round-the-world party for Floor 9. And I was was the Germans, which is where I'm from. All my heritage is from Germany. So we had, like, brats and sauerkraut and beer and all this good stuff. And, uh, you, you know, Rammstein was playing in the background. And so we hosted a party. My neighbor brought his girlfriend and a bunch of her friends. They showed up. I was going to a Moon Taxi concert that night because they play on New Year's Eve in Nashville. And you love them. So I left. She came to the party. They were at the house. There were probably 15 or 20 people there. I remember what that was like. And then I left to go to the concert with a couple of my buddies, because we'd already had tickets, watched the show. And then I left early and walked back from 3rd and Lindsley all the way back downtown in the rain.
1: Yeah, you couldn't get in a cab.
0: To come back and see her. And uh, again, never she never really left. It's been eight years or whatever going on nine years now and hasn't, hasn't really left. So, and now we have children and
1: <laughs> I never knew that story. Yeah,
0: that, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. She trapped me.
1: <laughs> Brats and moon taxi and cute blonde. Can't beat it.
0: I, I knew, I knew right then and there. It's, it's true. I walked back in the rain from moon taxi by myself. Cause no one, none of my friends wanted to leave. They're like, no dude, we're not leaving the concert.
1: <laughs> yeah. You got it bad.
0: So I was like, I got to go see this girl. I got to go see a guy about a horse. And I got out of there. And That's then funny. Then I, I learned
1: something new about you today.
0: And then now we do, you know, hopefully we have really good football games on new year's day. Hopefully we turn the page into a new year. We'll eat some black eyed peas and some greens and, uh, wish everybody a happy and safe, wonderful time. And we'll see you in 2021, I guess.
1: Praise God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank turn you it all. over. Thank you to Andy Staples for joining us. Thank you all for listening. My name is Braden Gall. Her name is Erin Dugan. Where can people follow you?
1: Uh, Aaron underscore Dugan on Instagram. The Erin Dugan on Twitter.
0: You can get to me at Braden Gall at four hundred and forty Sports on Twitter and Facebook as well. Enjoy your New Year's Eve. Enjoy your New Year's Day. Have a wonderful and safe holiday. This has been Fringe Element on the four hundred and forty Sports Network.
1: Thank God it's over.